You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Over the next month or so during Lent here, we're going to be focusing on the cross, the crucifixion of Christ and its meaning and we're going to be focusing on the sufferings of God in Christ and what that all means. Lent is, of course, the appropriate time to do this, as it is a time of reflecting on the passion narrative, again, the cross, the sufferings of Christ, and um, what it means for us to participate in the sufferings of Christ, perhaps, even if only in some small way. There are many different understandings of the cross, many different interpretations. Some are, of course, theological. Some are philosophical. Some are social and political. There isn't just one understanding of the cross or one right understanding of the cross. There are many. In a sense, the cross is like a a piece of artwork, right? There's, There's one, there's a cross up there. It's kind of like a piece of artwork whereby multiple people can look at it and derive multiple different meanings. It doesn't mean that one person's particular take is is better than another, or some are, in my opinion. But it doesn't mean that there's one right way. Sometimes there's not like a better way of interpreting it than another. And that's okay. The cross has always done this and always will. It speaks to us in a variety of ways. For example, some see the cross as representing an atoning sacrifice for our sins, representing... um, Jesus taking upon himself the just punishment of our wrongdoings. We talked about that view last week. Many of us were raised in that theology, that worldview, which, of course, I now reject, and and I'm sure many of you do as well. Others see the cross as representing simply God's love for us. He laid his life down for us, Jesus. So the cross is a symbol of sacrificial love for some. Others see the cross as representing the death of the God of religious law. Jesus, we're told, was sentenced to death for breaking religious law. We're told he was handed over to the Romans, Pontius Pilate, by the Jerusalem religious leaders because he defied their rigid interpretation of their scriptures and the oppressive religiosity that they lorded over the people. Therefore, his death for some represents deconstruction. It's a term we're all familiar with here, most of us probably. The deconstruction of religion as a means to God. The temple curtain was torn, we're told, upon his death, symbolizing that that deconstruction, that tearing down of the religious edifice, that which separates us from God. His death represents the deconstruction for some of these oppressive religious ideas, like that what God really wants is religious people, people who believe the right theology, the right dogmas and doctrines, and subscribe to the correct creeds, and are part of the right, the one right religion, and pray and go to church and read their Bibles and are pious. His death represents the crucifixion or the deconstruction of that idea for some. I'm one of them. Jesus' death represents the death of this traditional understanding of God 
And the resurrection or affirmation of this understanding of God is a God of pure love. Whose only so-called religious law is love and justice and that which enhances human well-being and human flourishing. For others, the cross represents the death of the God of power and might, the, the death of an almighty supreme being on high, the suffering and crucified God who cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The God revealed in, the, in, in this afflicted, suffering man of sorrows called Jesus of Nazareth. This God is for them not an all-powerful supreme being, but a God who is found suffering with us in the world and calling us to share in his sufferings and to share in each other's sufferings as a way of bringing healing and hope and relief into the world, into each other's lives. The cross in this way represents life in the world as it actually is. The cross in all of its horror represents life in the world as it actually is. It represents the God-forsakenness, the, the godlessness of the world, so to speak. Not godless and God-forsaken of all gods, perhaps, but just godless and God-forsaken of the traditional God of religion who can intervene and save the day if we just pray hard enough and pray with enough faith. We're told by traditional religion that Jesus was just, when he was hanging on the cross, he was just feigning weakness and powerlessness. He had a, a wink in his eye when he's hanging up there crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't really mean it. He wasn't really nailed there. If he wanted to, we're, we're, we're told that he could have supernaturally pushed the nails from his hands and feet and floated down and, and healed his wounds and then with a flick of his wrist laid waste to all those nasty Romans and taught him a lesson. He wasn't really nailed there, we're told. Not really. He wasn't really despairing when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, I don't, I don't like to think of the cross as simply cosmic theater, a puppet show. I think he was really nailed there. I, I think he was really nailed there. Against his will, even, perhaps, to some degree. In his humiliation, justice was denied him, Scripture says. The cross represents, for some, including me, that's why I'm emphasizing this, the death of this God of traditional religion and therefore represents, again, life in the world as it actually is. Where the pediatric oncology ward down at the local hospital remains full of children with cancer, regardless of how hard their parents are praying, those who see the cross this way are not necessarily atheists. I am not an atheist. They're just atheists with regards to, to traditional and conservative religious understandings of God. Such people are often mystics. I count myself among them. Who believe God is, is the fabric of life and being and existence itself, or God is love for them, period, full stop. God is love. Others see the cross as 
as a demonstration of God's solidarity with the oppressed, the afflicted, and the downtrodden, those on the margins who are dehumanized because of their social status, their sexuality, their gender, their economic status, their race, their religion. The cross stands as God's solidarity with all those under the boot of power. And I want to focus most on that understanding of the cross here today. This being the last Sunday of Black History Month, I want to focus on the late James Cone's understanding of the cross, which I've spoken on before, of course, but it's been some time and it bears repeating. The cross for much of the black church, Cone argues, is the ultimate symbol of this God who stands in solidarity with the oppressed and the downtrodden. Those who suffer under the boot of power. Cone argues that in order to truly understand the cross, one must view it through the lens of the lynching tree because Christ's crucifixion was, in fact, a first-century lynching. What is that? In his seminal 2011 book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, Dr. Cone, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, Dr. Cone argues that white Christians have never made this connection, really, between the cross and the lynching tree which is evidence of just how much we've understood the cross and the gospel, the white church, and read it from a white perspective. Cone argues that when black folks read passages in the Bible, like Acts 10.39, which says of Jesus, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. You hear that? They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Dr. Cone says... When black folks hear that passage, historically, their mind goes immediately to the image of a lynching, and rightly so, but not so for most of the white church. And so Cohn argues that, that only an oppressed community, like the black community, can best interpret the cross and the gospel, because that's who it was originally for. It wasn't really originally for privileged relatively wealthy, safe, and secure folks. The Christianity, the cross, the gospel, wasn't really for us. It was for the poor. It was for the oppressed. Those suffering under the boot of power, under Roman occupation. It was for first century Israel. Those suffering under Roman occupation and those under an oppressive Jerusalem religious leadership that was in cahoots with Rome to exploit the peasantry and the general populace of which Jesus was among, born to a peasant family in the backwaters of Galilee. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Someone, Nathaniel, once remarked. That's who he was. That's who we, we stood in solidarity with. Christianity wasn't originally for us privileged, relatively wealthy, safe, and secure folk. It's for the vulnerable, for the poor, the oppressed, and the afflicted. And therefore, for us to read it correctly, to understand it correctly, we must adopt, if possible, the lens, the, the hermeneutic of the oppressed meaning the interpretation of the oppressed, and allow the text to speak to us the way it speaks to them, if possible.
And with regards to the cross, that means seeing it as a lynching tree. And the similarities between the cross and a lynching tree are many. Consider that lynchings and crucifixions were both common in their day as forms of punishment and intimidation. Countless people, countless, were, were crucified by the Romans 2,000 years ago. It wasn't just Jesus. It wasn't a rare event. Jesus was among thousands, if not tens of thousands, or who knows how many that were crucified back then. Jesus was crucified in the same manner as they were, and for similar reasons. Crucifixion was almost always reserved for those who were guilty of crimes against the state, guilty of challenging authority, Roman power, which Jesus did by causing civil unrest in various ways. Like, remember, Desiree was here last week talking about the story in Mark where Jesus went into the temple and flipped over the merchant tables and drove them out, saying, you've turned the house of the Lord into a den of thieves. What were they doing? They were exploiting the poor during Passover week, charging usury. And so Jesus started a riot, flipping over the tables and driving out the money changers and the merchants because they were exploiting the poor. And it's then that the authorities said, this guy's got to go. His teachings, of course, challenged the Roman-backed religious authorities, like the Pharisees and the high priest, and thereby threatened social order and their control over the people. He also went around teaching that he was inaugurating a new kingdom. That was a big no-no. It was inflammatory language. He was inaugurating a new kingdom called the kingdom of God, and he was heralded as the king of Israel. This, this got him a lot of trouble. All of this was seditious. Seen as seditious, it wasn't really. It was seen as such. Thus, Jesus' crucifixion was a first-century lynching. This way, his death was a profound act of solidarity with all the lynched ones of the world, those who were labeled as threats to power, threats to the established order. And just like the lynching of a black person in the American South, the crucifying of Christ was done in a public space as a public spectacle in order to drive home the point, this is what's going to happen to you if you get out of line, if you challenge the powers that be. That's going to happen to you. The same thing happened with lynchings. Lynching in America during the 19th and 20th century was a way of reminding black folk of their place at the bottom of the social ladder and terrorizing them, intimidating them into submission, telling them that the slightest hint of opposition and rebellion could be met with death. Crucifixions and lynchings share all this in common. This is why the crucifixion, Cone argues, should be understood as a first century lynching and a symbol of God's solidarity with all the lynched ones of the world. Those who suffer at the hands of power, those who are humiliated and made a, a public spectacle of in the name of law and order. As scripture says in the book of Acts, as I said earlier, in his humiliation, justice was denied him. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. It's talking about Jesus on the cross. 
Therefore, as followers of Christ, we must always be asking ourselves, who are those among us today who are being humiliated and denied justice because of who they are? As Emily was up here talking about the fight going on in our community right now for gay rights in the, in the school district. Gay students are being harmed and dehumanized. They are among the humiliated today and among those who are being denied justice because of who they are and they are being treated this way by the status quo, by those who have historically been in power, white, straight, men. We're primarily driving this attempt to repress and harm LGBTQ, particularly trans folks, particularly trans. We must always be asking ourselves, who are those in our midst today who are being humiliated and denied justice because they are Christ in our midst? You want to know who, where God is? He's among those who are humiliated and denied justice because of who they are, because of how they threaten the social order, because of simply their existence. To stand with them is to stand with Christ. So as we turn to the Lord's Supper today, I want us to meditate on this idea that here we find in these elements the body and blood of a lynched God here we find the body and the blood of a lynched God. And to partake in this holy sacrament, to partake in his body and blood, is to stand in solidarity with all the lynched ones of the world, or at least the desire to, just as he did. To part The meaning of the sacrament, part of the meaning of it, is to take sides with them. Being a centrist and a moderate who doesn't take sides is not the way of Christ. Christ took sides, and his side was clearly with the poor and the oppressed. If we do not side with them, we have not sided with Christ. So let us receive the Lord's Supper today as a sign of our solidarity with them and with Christ and his virtues of liberation and justice. Be blessed in this now. Each episode of The Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. comments today what did, what did this talk raise for you I'm, I'm also curious to hear if anybody wants to share how do you view the cross how has your views of the cross maybe changed over the years i'd be interested in hearing your interpretation of the cross today what works for you yeah emily um it made me think about i mean i feel like i talked about 
this last week. Now I kind of feel like maybe his biggest sacrifice was becoming human rather than dying on the cross. Um, Cause that just sort of makes more sense to lose the power that you had. Um, but it was more important to walk with us, I think is the point, you know what I mean? To then rather than hold uh, those laws and, you know, religious rituals and things that they saw important before, I think that was the more important thing. But today I realized like I hadn't thought about how, what the Bible says to people who aren't me, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I think the religion that I was brought up in is this is what the Bible says. It says it to everyone and it should speak like that to ever the same to everyone. Right. But it's like anyone, if just reading a book, reading anything, listening to someone, you hear that from your own lived experience. And it just hadn't occurred to me until you said that. Like, I was like, I mean, another hit in the head here at Central Avenue congregation. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's a really interesting point is like, I now have to wonder what does it say to other people who don't have my same worldview and who don't, you know, how did they view it? Which is so much more reason to have a conversation with people who aren't like you. But if you're scared of that, right? Like if you refuse to see it from another person's point of view based on their lived experience, then you're literally like denying the existence of others, which is sort of what we see playing out in politics, you know, denying other people's identity and who they are, you know, it's gross. Well, I'm just really just blessed to hear. I guess that's the, the term I want to use, but I'm just like, thank you for sharing all that because it, it sounds simple, but it's not. And it's it's incredible. It's always a, a blessing to me to hear people come here and and learn that and get that because that's huge. I'm just so thankful that you feel that way. And just thank you for sharing that. And that just does my heart a lot of good to know that, that you've gotten that here. You know, that's Same. And you started out by mentioning something really interesting. And I just wanted to point out that the first century church did notice and believe there was something profoundly meaningful about you don't know that well i've talked about this before it's called kenosis you didn't use the word kenosis but this idea that he became human and emptied himself of this kind of you know status well this again this is church doctrine this was church belief i'm not saying this is metaphysically true but I, i'm saying this was how the church understood the incarnation that he emptied himself. This is Paul, uh, Philippians 2. He emptied himself, became human. Not just a human being, but a servant, a nothing, a so-called nothing and a nobody, not just a human being. He, 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 the thinking was he could have become like a prince or a king. No, he became a peasant nobody and, and fully emptied himself of majesty and glory and power, right? Like heaven, heavenly status which again goes to this idea of the cross being this symbol of weakness and powerlessness, the God who embraced weakness and powerlessness in order to be in solidarity with us, in order to show us 
that our mortal finite lives, such as they are, can actually be divine and beautiful. And by embracing reality, embracing this life, this world, as it is, not covering it up with a lot of religious ideas, embracing reality as it is, the cross, we can find serenity, we can find renewal, we can find redemption, we can find serenity, we can find God in our midst, hope. But you can't avoid the cross, you can't avoid kenosis. And, and those ideas were always there, were there from the get-go in the church. And, you know, you see Paul wrestling with it. First Corinthians, you know, he says, you know, that the cross is weakness and foolishness. It's nonsense to both Jew and Greek alike. But for those of us who understand, it's, 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 it's the gospel. It's the truth of God. It's the glory of God. The, this weakness and powerlessness is it's really, the, it's really the strength of God. It's the strength of it. It's found in the weakness and the powerless, what the world calls weak and powerless. We know is real strength, real power. You know, that's the, the dialectic, the paradoxical nature of it all, that Paul just mused on it. And he was one of the first, you know? Anyway. I guess it sort of leaves a question too, is like he didn't really become human because he then performed miracles. Well, that that's a story as well. Not, right? Yeah. It's like, so how does that fit into, yeah, it's a great I gave question. up everything because it... He didn't. Well, yeah. So my reading of it, my reading of it, <laughs> uh, I read those miracle stories as, you know, basically part of this idea that he was in solidarity with the broken and the powerless, you know, and that ultimately um, those stories, like where he heals the blind, right, where he opens the ears of the deaf, I read that as, as metaphorical for what happens when you encounter these truths, the God who is with us in the muck and the mire of everyday life, your eyes are opened. Your ears are unstopped. The lame are suddenly walking. The, the dead are being raised, spiritually speaking. That's how I read the miracle stories. It was what was going on in the minds and hearts of those who were encountering this liberating gospel that God is with us and you are not disconnected from God, no matter what the Pharisees and the, and the, and the religious authorities are telling you. God is love. God is here. God is now in the form of your neighbor in need. And with you, in your sufferings, those who understood that experienced new life experience resurrection and healing. That's how I read those miracle stories. But that's me. There's reasons to think that, by the way, in the text, that especially in Mark's gospel, this is called the Mark and Sandwich, where Mark will sandwich two miracle stories. And in the middle, this is the sandwich portion, it'll be a teaching on what it means to understand Christ. Like two, two miracle stories of the blind seeing. And then in the middle, you find somebody realizing, seeing for the first time, what it means, what Jesus is teaching to me. Yeah. So, I mean, even in Mark's gospel, those miracle stories are presented as literary devices quite often. And scholars acknowledge that and have a name for it. It's called a Mark and Sandwich. So this isn't just Aaron's point of view. The gospel was written 2,000 years ago, but they were written by extremely sophisticated thinkers and writers. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, what helped me with that was um, reading Marcus Borg, who I've spoken about before, how he described the gospel as a hybrid of the burgeoning movement mm -hmm. after Jesus's death. And then what was like secondhand 
um, experience of what he like physically said and did. So I also take it as like, this is what they were saying about this person. Like, do I like, it was he literally born of a virgin? Was he literally born? Like I, I'm in, the, I hold that in the same way of like, this is part of the Christian movement. This is part of like what they're saying about their savior. Um, but I personally don't literally in that way, but I say it as like, oh, that's the part of the gospels that's intermingling with secondhand experience of what Jesus was teaching on the ground with like this notion of who they thought, what they thought about him after his death. Um, so that was just something that I, thought, I found interesting, but um, really quick about the epistolary part of the New Testament. I, I remember reading somewhere of like someone wrote it as like, the epistles are like you reading someone else's mail. And I think like that helped me view it where I think so it's, much. It's of, not like that. It is. You, read, <laughs> you are literally reading someone else's mail. Um, and also like, because the early Christians were persecuted, like you were saying, like it's written from a position of we're being persecuted. So now if you have like wealthy white hetero cis individuals reading that, they're like, oh my gosh, we're persecuted. And it's like, no, like they were persecuted. So I, it feels like this whole posture, like with the Glendale school district and everything that we're seeing culturally is like, we're under attack. Christians are under attack. Like they're coming for us. We're persecuted. It's constantly this position that they think is the same as the first century when they were literally being thrown to lions. Like they're, no one's throwing you to the lions right now, my friend. So it's like, there's no, like, you have to have that awareness of you're not persecuted. They actually were. Yeah. They, they conflate persecution with not getting their own way all the time. They don't get all their own way all the time. They infer, oh, this is, we're being persecuted. Yeah. Anyway, good point. Um, somebody else. Yeah, Marsha. It's more a question. When someone is suffering, and I know you go to the sides of care, how do you view your relationship to those people who are suffering? That's a great question. Yes, this is something I wrestle with as a chaplain, to be honest. You know, I see my role in those moments as someone who takes on and embodies the faith and the needs of the people in front of me. And when I pray, I pray with hope, but I don't pray with that Pentecostal fundamentalist certainty that I did when I was younger, you know, that, oh, if I just pray hard enough and pray with enough faith, I can heal this person, you know. I, I pray with hope, but I I pray with hope. That's the best way to put it. And I also see my role in those moments is not just, you know, someone who comes to, to pray, so to speak, but I see my role in those moments as a human being who in some way represents, because I'm a pastor, I, in some way, represent God to them in that moment. I understand that. And just me being present and holding their hand and being who they need me to be in that moment, sincerely, with, without I'm not being insincere here, to me is the thing I'm doing. Uh, does that make sense, Marsha? It's, it's not about, you know, certainty anymore for me when I pray for them. It is about hope, but it's also about me simply just recognizing I am performing, not performing, but I am embodying God in this moment for this person in some small way. And in that way, I'm bringing, you know, 
hopefully a little bit of relief. Um, that's how I see prayer and presence in those moments right now for me. But I recognize that when I'm with a patient, their faith might be different than mine, whether they're Christian, sometimes they're not Christian, but they still want a spiritual leader there to be with them, to pray with them. And I'm there to do that, regardless if their beliefs are different than mine. I'm, I'm there to help them find the spiritual tools that work for them in that moment. It's not about me. It's about them. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. It's tough. It's tough in some ways. But that's how I, I think about it. We can talk more about that later if, if you have more questions. But yeah. Somebody else. Yeah. Cool. Well, let us conclude our time together with our joint benediction. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Thanks for being here. Go in peace. Thank you.